Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. It's really the very real people whose stories I have the honor to be able to elevate and to put out to a wider audience. This is what drives me. From A Decibel Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to A Decibel Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. Over the past several months, we've received such great feedback from our listeners that we've decided to bring you a special Encore episode. In honor of International Women's Day, a day that is celebrated around the world to help nations eliminate discrimination against women, we are thrilled to be speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Cheryl Diaz-Meyer about her recent work with National Public Radio, that sheds light on Filipina sex slaves, or comfort women as they were called, during the Japanese occupation of the Philippines in World War II. Cheryl is known for her conflict photography and coverage of both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, the former of which garnered her and colleague David Leeson the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for breaking news photography for her coverage of the war in Iraq. Her work also provides insightful documentation of women facing adversity across the globe. Cheryl Diaz-Meyer, welcome to A Decibel Voices, and thank you for joining us via phone from the safety of your home. Thank you, Megan, for having me. Before we get started, we did want to give listeners a heads up that this episode is for mature audiences only, and will cover the difficult topic of rape and may contain graphic descriptions of sexual and physical violence. This story was supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and the Young Hee Kim Grant. Cheryl, congratulations on your story about the last living survivors or comfort women of the Philippines. Thank you, Megan. You've lived such an incredible life so far and through your work have been a witness to unforgettable human moments few of us could even face or perhaps even want to experience. I wonder if we could spend some time giving our listeners some context about your childhood and upbringing so they can begin to understand how you became this internationally renowned photojournalist. You were born in Quezon City, Philippines. Am I saying that right? Quezon but moved to America at the age of 13 and landed in Duluth, Minnesota. Yes. What brought you to Duluth and and what was your childhood like? My father, who had been uh, working for the Department of Defense school system as a teacher, decided that he was done doing that and wanted to settle back in the U.S. He had been living abroad for many, many years. And... He 
decided that Duluth would be a safe place to raise kids from a small city in the Philippines. And, uh, and so he brought us there. There were very few people of color in the city at the time. In my school, there was like one uh, black boy who was adopted by a white family and a couple other kids, um, maybe from Vietnam. Otherwise, it was pretty uh, homogeneous. How did your family kind of settle? Well, we were definitely an anomaly, I think. It was not an easy time. Anytime, I think, when you're 13 years old and you're moving to another place, another house, another neighborhood, it's hard, much less to go from, you know, a tropical <laughs> country to one of the coldest places in the United States where people stay in, you know, a good part of the year. You don't even see them because they're just in their homes. Mm-hmm. It did make me, I think, always understand the feeling of being the other, that I was never going to be like the other people and that they would always see me as the other in some way. I tried my best to get rid of my accent as soon as possible. I tried to blend in, you know, as best I could to lose anything that that would somehow differentiate me as teenagers do anyway. But that kind of really made me, I think, very conscious of what it means to be on the other end of not being in the majority. Do you think that having this sense of, uh, you said, being the other do you think that's influenced your your work at all? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The Comfort Women story, they are the epitome of the other. They are Filipino, but even in the Philippines, they lived with so much. I mean, they were ostracized. These women for many years couldn't say anything. It took immense bravery and courage for them to come out in the 90s and reveal that they had been abused mm-hmm. and taken advantage of. So many of the stories that that I do tend to be drawn to are giving voice to people who I feel like, you know, are the other and who don't necessarily have that platform to have their stories heard. I'm curious were there any other family members or relatives that are kind of visually, you know, um, oriented like yourself? Any other photographers in the family or artists? Actually, no other photographers. My, well, my brother did photography when he was younger. And in later life, he picked it up again. He's the one who gave me my first camera. He didn't actually practice it professionally until much later in life, I did discover that my mom, who I never knew all my life, is very artistic. Uh, She, in recent years, sits down with my daughter when she visits, and they'll draw together, and I'm blown away by her skill. Never knew that she had that. So you mentioned your brother gave you your first camera. Do you remember what what it was? I just remember that it was a Minolta. 
<laughs> it was definitely a film camera back in the day. And he gave me multiple lenses. And he just said, you know, set this to a 60th and then adjust the aperture over here to when this metering comes to zero. It was as simple as that. Yeah. What a nice gift. I mean, that must have been quite a, a substantial gift. It was. It was. I mean, that was the beginning of, of uh, my my career. I, I have to him to thank for it. I did some research and I read that there was a moment where you were at, uh, I think you were at University of Minnesota Duluth, and it was like an art installation for Sebastio Salgado. I had read that it was kind of a visceral moment for you looking at some of his work. Do you remember that? <laughs> it's actually, um, yeah. So there was this, the Ma Magnum was having their show at the Art Institute. And I don't know how it came to be that I was in the area, but I stopped and they had, I think, some huge posters outside um, signage and so I just started like I was like a drawn to light if you will like an insect drawn to light and was like circling the building and just looking at the signage um, and just thinking oh wow this is amazing and then there was this open door and somehow I walked into this open door and next thing you know, I was inside the exhibit. I, you know, and I was just walking around like, like in a daze. Then nobody asked me, like, "What are you doing in here? Why are you here?" This exhibit, I don't think was even. I don't even know if it was open yet. But somehow, I'm wandering around in this thing, and these prints are like, I don't know, like thirty by fifty or something. I mean, they're just massive. And so the impact was like insane. Like I just, it was like I was hearing if I, you know, you could imagine like the most exquisite opera in your head. It was like these images were exploding in my mind's eye. And I was so moved by them. I mean, it was literally like I was brought to tears. It's hard to describe. I mean, it's a visceral moment. You feel it in your gut. You feel it in every cell of your body. That's what I was experiencing. And I've had a couple of moments like that in my life where, you know, photojournalism has impacted me in that way. And those have been my moments where I thought, okay, I have to be doing this. You get your BA in German, and then you, you get a BA in photojournalism at Western Kentucky University. And how old are you at this point? Uh, early 20s or something like that? I think I was like 20, 23, 24. At that point, did you ever wonder how gender may impact your career path? Yeah. <laughs> I remember having a very specific conversation about this in school at Western Kentucky. One of my best friends until today was a fellow student. Her name was uh, Amethel Perel, and she was also Filipina. I was looking around the our, sort of our common space in the photojournalism department, and it was mostly guys, 
mostly Caucasian, and thinking to myself, God, I'm at such a detriment, you know? Mm. I remember saying to her very specifically, I said, you know, how are we supposed to compete? These guys are like six feet something, 200 pounds. You know, I'm, I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. And I'm small. How do you even, like, compete? And she said to me in this really funny way, she said, kind of like in Little Red Riding Hood, she said, well, you're a woman. You know, all the better for you to connect with women and do stories about women's issues. She said, you're a person of color. Think about all the the immigrants and the people who are not like these people around us who need their stories told. And I said, and I'm small, I'm small. Like, how can I even carry all this stuff? What benefit is that? She said, oh, all the better for you to sneak under their elbows and squeeze between their tripods so that you can get to the front of the line. I saw myself in this half-empty kind of glass way, but that was such a pivotal conversation for me because I realized that who I am in my entirety as a person, my background, my experience, whether it's my height, whether it's my, my, my color, is what I bring to the table. Those are my superpowers. Because of my background, I could go to Iraq into places other people couldn't go because of my coloring. I could pass. People didn't think I was a foreigner. Who I am and the differences are my strengths. I've learned to embrace them and celebrate them and use them. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just tuning in, we've been talking with Cheryl Diaz-Meyer, an independent Pulitzer Prize-winning conflict photographer known for her coverage of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. As the visual editor for McClatchy's Washington Bureau, Cheryl was part of a team that won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting for the Panama Papers Project. Cheryl's photos have been recognized by the Overseas Press Club, the White House News Photographers Association, and others throughout her 25-year career. Thank you for joining us via phone from the safety of your home. Thanks for having me, Megan. Cheryl, let's dive into your recent work with NPR, that sheds light on Filipina sex slaves, or comfort women as they were called. And to be clear for our listeners, your story focuses on the survivors and victims in the Philippines, but listeners should be aware that between 200,000 to 400,000 women were victimized by Japanese soldiers in different parts of Asia, occupied by Japan, predominantly Korea. But other countries include Singapore, Myanmar, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, and Taiwan. Journalist Julie McCarthy explains that 
During World War II, Japanese imperial troops set up a system of sexual servitude where abduction, coercion, and deception took place that forced women and girls to provide sexual gratification to military personnel. In Cheryl, according to the NPR article, research revealed that there may have been close to a thousand women and girls taken and put into these military sex slave camps during the Japanese occupation from 1942 to 1945. Is that correct? Yes. And how many survivors were you and the NPR team able to locate in interview? So we were able to interview 27 women, but we were able actually to identify about 45 that are still alive. I mean, when you think about it, that's a lot of women in their 80s, late 80s, early 90s. A lot of the ones who were older have passed away. Many also are uh, incapacitated. So even though I was able to photograph them, we might not have been able to necessarily interview them. That is incredible that that, that many women were brave enough to come forward to share their story. You know, in the 90s was when the women, the first comfort woman in the Philippines came forward. They went on radio, which was back then how uh, people got the news, especially out in the, um, in the villages and in the kind of more rural areas. They went on radio and said, hey, come forward. We need to make a case against the Japanese. And, you know, a lot of them got together. They started finding out that their neighbors, people they never knew who had also served during that time as sex slaves came forward. And there were friendships that were developed. And I think like even you could say that the support network that they that they ended up developing among themselves probably contributed to their own survival and mental health. Because for many, this became the first time that they publicly acknowledged, even within their families, acknowledged that this had happened. I just want to step back because we've spoken and you originally pitched this idea of a story to the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and ultimately received a grant for it. I wonder if you could share with our listeners like what the genesis of this story was and how the idea came to you and why did you want to tackle it as a photojournalist? Growing up in the Philippines, I lived for a time with my my grandparents and we lived in a compound with my with other aunts and uncles and cousins. And Filipino kids did not grow up with the fairy tales as we know it. The grim fairy tales, the Anderson fairy tales. They grew up with stories of the war. So I listened as a child to stories of the times when my grandfather was helping arm guerrillas and how he would hide the armaments in vegetable baskets to take them to the fighters, how he befriended the local Japanese officer uh, to make sure his family was safe. But then eventually, as the bombardment happened in our region, how they had to live in caves 
and there was even like a term they would say, you know, in the time of the Japanese, they would say, in the time of the Japanese, this would happen. And that was a very common thing. And so the, like, I feel like I was shaped by that. I was shaped by experiences that I personally never had, but that my extended family and that my, my mother had. But I didn't know about the, the comfort women. And I came across their stories um, in, in research. And I then wanted to learn more about it. So I just was fascinated that this had happened. And as it turns out, actually, the region that I'm from also had a lot of garrisons for comfort women. Did you have any goals going into this story and this assignment as a photojournalist? I did. They were humble goals <laughs> because, for one, I thought there were four to six women alive. Mm -hmm. And I felt a tremendous sense of urgency. There were a handful of women left to be able to tell the story. And I wanted to hear it directly from them. And I wanted to understand what makes these women survivors? You know, Cheryl, a story of this intensity, magnitude, and sensitivity to me is, is mind-boggling. I do want to just ground it a little bit and ask you, can you touch on the timeline of the story and how long from start to finish it took to report? By the time it was said and done, it was a good two-year endeavor. I would say I started researching this in mid-2018. I spent several months reading about it. I knew I needed to get some funding for it, and I did end up securing um, the Young Hee Kim grant. Young Hee Kim is a Korean-American photographer who did the seminal work on Korean comfort women, and really comfort women at all. She went to Korea and did some absolutely amazing, beautiful work on that topic. Um, and through the years, she has put together a number of grants that she bequeaths to photojournalists for projects of, of varying topics. So I applied with this concept, and uh, she granted me the first monies to, uh, to help me get going on this story. And honestly, the confidence to know that this was actually going to fly. And then in early 2019, I also applied for the Pulitzer grant with the support of NPR. They also gifted me a grant to work on this. And we ended up doing the work in, in 2019. So I stayed for several weeks in the Philippines working on this project. There was also a lot of time spent checking on details and contacting um, the embassies or the government, lawyers. It's a legal case, right? This is an international uh, legal case. We had to get a lot of things right. Were there any unexpected twists and turns that just, you know, surprised you? I guess you wouldn't say it was a surprise, but we did lose four women in the course of the reporting. Mm. And that was really sad. Uh, because, again, it really underscored for us the urgency to get the story out. 
That is incredibly sad. For some of these women, the families didn't even have the money to bury them. It's very heartbreaking. The fact that you guys captured so many stories in such an authentic manner moved me. I did want to, you know, talk about your photos. In particular, the one that I was moved by the most was uh, Pilar. And she's basically holding a mirror fragment as she stands in front of the ruins of the house where she was raped as a nine-year-old child. Can you tell me the backstory of that photo and how it came to be? Yeah, I had researched this particular incident. There was a village uh, in Pampanga where a mansion, and it was dubbed the Red Mansion. In Filipino, they called it the Red House, Bahay Napula, where they had basically gone into a village, the Japanese Imperial Army, brutally they castrated the men and the boys shoved their penises in their mouths and then gunned them down is the way it was described by the women and they some of them watched some of them couldn't watch some of them could just hear the screaming eventually they took the women and the girls some of them it was multiple generations of females in one family were marched to this red house, which was a couple of miles away. And it was very wet and slippery. And they basically forced the girls to bring all of the loot because the Japanese had looted all of their houses first. Then they torched the houses. So they took all the loot, anything that was of value, and they forced the, the, the women and the girls to carry it in these, these slick, muddy roads. And apparently the women said that if they fell, if they slipped, they would take the, the, the tip of their bayonet and they would, you know, basically poke them in the back to make them stand up. Eventually, when they made it there, they dumped all the stuff, left their belongings there, and then the girls were sort of, the Japanese had their dinner, and then they turned to the, the girls and the women Anyway, I knew the story of what happened there because I had there were there were um, articles about it, and that I didn't know the looked like the condition of the house had been deteriorating. Um, there were either the owner or looters had come and taken parts of the wood, the flooring, etc. And so I wanted to find a way to kind of combine the history. You know, the obvious thing would be to have the women somehow standing in front of the house and I knew it was going to be a portrait situation. So I had thought about, you know, what are the different techniques I could use to show that this was in the past and that their lives were shattered. I had gotten to this village in Bampanga and uh, was staying with the family of one of the women and um, asked for, you know, do you have a, a, a any kind of broken mirror? And they said, well, no, we don't keep a broken mirror. That would be bad luck. <laughs> so I had kind of forgotten that, you know, like, because Filipinos are very superstitious. So I said, well, okay, well, do you have a mirror? And uh, anyway, so we came up with this, like, you know, mirror. And um, I, I knew that I wanted it to symbolically be broken. So I, they, I said, is we're not going to break the mirror. We don't want the bad luck. So I had to break the mirror. 
I then, you know, snipped off the edges and then we went to the house and I explained to the women what I was doing. And, um, and I really was only intending to photograph the, the leader of this group called the Malaya Lola. But then once the women saw me doing it, they all wanted their picture taken. To me, it was just interesting that they, they really seemed to grasp the importance of, of documenting. Is there a particular story or anything that you can remember that maybe wasn't covered in the article that you, you might want to share with our listeners? Yeah, there was one, it was kind of hinted at in the story, I think. Due to space issues, um, we didn't get into it as deeply as we would have liked. But one of the women, the woman who was the the focus of the radio story, Narcisa Claveria, I met her in Manila at the offices of Villa Filipina. And this is where the comfort women have, you know, there's documentation. These are their offices. As we were wrapping up the story, preparing for publication, we realized that there was a connection between her and one of the other women. And that is that it was her sister. And we knew the backstory that Narcisa had grown up in Abra, in the northern part of the Philippines. She had several siblings. The Japanese came to the village looking for gorillas. They came to their house specifically because her father was a community leader. And in sort of the mix-up of the language, they thought that he was hiding someone and that that someone was a gorilla. Basically, the Japanese said, how many children do you have? He said, seven. He said, line them all up. They all lined up and there were six. He said, you're lying. He said, oh, I forgot to tell you. I have a daughter an older daughter, and she lives in Manila. They said, no, you're hiding a gorilla. Where is your seventh child? He said, I promise you I'm not lying. And they began to skin him alive like a water buffalo. Hmm. That's how she described it. In the meanwhile, they rape her mother. They, the two little boys try to protect the mom. They throw them in the air and they bayonet them. Mm. She runs up to see her mother being being raped. Eventually, they set the house on fire. They take the three teenage girls with them and they all are taken to be sex slaves. And that lasts for, I think, about a year and a half. One of her sisters never comes they never see her again, so they believe that she dies. According to the statistics and the research, three-quarters of comfort women died because of their torturous treatment. The other sister comes out with her, but she is, at this point, mentally incapacitated. In the course of their being enslaved, she is in so much pain, she continuously fights off the Japanese, and they put out their cigarettes on her. She eventually just literally loses her mind. So when Narcisa escapes, she takes her mentally incapacitated sister 
and they go back to their land where they eventually connect with their brothers, their two brothers who somehow make it out alive. So in the 90s, she comes forward and she is part of a group of comfort women who are seeking restitution. They're rallying, they're protesting to the government. And on one particular hot day, she has to go to the marketplace to find a restroom. And they go to the marketplace and a woman is at a stall selling things. And she says, hey, come on, why don't you buy my goods? Um, Stop by and buy some vegetables or what have you. She goes to the restroom, comes back out, looks at the woman and she says, you know, you look kind of familiar. She said, where are you from? And the woman says, I'm from Abra. She says, really? So am I. She said, what's your family name? And she says her family name from when she was single. She said, my last name is Adriatico. She said, well, what's your father's name? And she names Narcisa's father's name. And she looks at her, she says, you're Estela Adriatico. She said, you're my sister. And they realize that they haven't seen each other in decades and that this was the sister that was gone when the Japanese thought that there was a, you know, that the father was hiding a gorilla. And so they have a reunion and the sister reveals that she herself was also a comfort woman during the war. And so four daughters, a mother, and an aunt were all sexually brutalized from one family Mm. during the war. Incredible. You know, hearing stories like that, I, I can't imagine that it hasn't had an impact on you in some way. Has it? Has the story and assignment impacted you? It definitely has. I'm trying to put a finger on it. I mean, for two years, I've been thinking about this story, thinking about their stories. Of course, after the reporting, just the immense um, sense of gratitude and awe has really struck me because you can't not be touched by the level of bravery that it took. So we published the story um, in early December uh, 2020, and Narcisa's birthday was December 23. We arranged for a cake to be sent to her, and then we called her. We did a video conference call with her, the writer and I, and um, and it was really amazing. It was mm. absolutely amazing to talk to her. Um, we laughed, we cried, we we just kept telling her how how grateful we were, and how she had inspired us. Ultimately, Cheryl, what do you think will put, you know, these survivors like Pilar Narcisa at peace? They want basically formal acknowledgement that that their humanity, their dignity is acknowledged. Because I think that ultimately is what they feel was stripped from them. Like they were dehumanized by that experience. And that really is is what I think would give them peace. 
Cheryl, is there any possibility, you know, for you in any version uh, of a continuation of this story in some fashion? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that I can continue this work, not only in the Philippines, but possibly elsewhere. I have also spoken to descendants of comfort women and talked to them about the effects of that basically the legacy of what this cruelty has created. I know I'll be following uh, your work really closely. And for our listeners that want to read the full NPR article and its accompanying photo story, we will be sure to include the link on this episode page on our website, as well as a direct link to Cheryl's website and uh, any of her social media accounts. As we come to the end of your interview, Cheryl, I want to just turn our focus back to the craft of photojournalism. How would you define what makes an impactful photo and why? The feeling of it. When I feel a photo, I know it's a great photo. So it's the impact in my gut that really speaks to me. Then I can secondarily take the photo apart and say, well, aesthetically it does this, or aesthetically it does that, or the photographer used emotion or line or repetition or whatever are the tools of the trade um, in terms of the aesthetics. That's another level, but oftentimes it's just in feeling the image where I think, oh, wow okay, why is it that this image resonates with me? Then, then you know, verbally, it's easier to, to deconstruct the aesthetics of what you're actually seeing. First and foremost is, does it make you feel something? Does it make you react? Does it make you think? That's when I know I've seen a great image. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of timing and its relevance to capturing that meaningful image? You know, as a photographer, you are in a space, you're with people, you have the, the challenges is to just put yourself in a position to make a photo, right? So there's the more overarching timing <laughs> of when is the right time to tell a story for this particular one we hung it on the 75th anniversary of the end of world war ii so there's that kind of timing but you know within the realm of you're a photojournalist you're in somebody's space when is the right time to take a photo when have you built enough trust where you feel like you're making real pictures there's also the timing of when you're trying to capture a moment and somebody's face opens up to you enough that the light is hitting it just so and you can reveal something with that frame. I think one of the biggest challenges early on when people are taking pictures is really that, you know, is just timing when they snap the frame to capture something that is revealing. For any emerging photojournalists that may be listening, what advice would you give them? I think the most important thing is to be a well-rounded person so that you can identify topics that you want to work on that are personal to you. Photojournalism is essentially 
photographing life. And there's so many different directions that you can go. And I think that finding where you as an individual fit in, what your personal interests are, what drives you, is what's going to ultimately fire your imagination and lead you to the kind of work that you want to be doing. You know, Cheryl, you see thousands of images over your career and we are just becoming, our society is just becoming more digitally saturated. Where do you see the future of the industry and photojournalism? It's interesting because there was a period where the industry was asking itself, what is our new role um, as we're moving away from the print product and becoming more digital? And what we found actually is that there is even more need for visuals than there ever has been because nobody can sustain reading gray text on a web page solely, right? Mm -hmm. Like it has to be broken up by whether it's ad images or journalistic images or images that illustrate what the author is talking about. And so visually, I think there's so many different ways now that photography has gone in terms of the future of, you know, of, of basically visual storytelling, right? Um, it's not just journalism anymore. It's really becomes about visual storytelling. There are many, many, many ways that this has grown and will continue, I'm sure, to grow and be used. And staying kind of loose and open as these things kind of, you know, grow and change, I think is really going to be key to how the industry shapes. You know, you've been now in the business for what, over two decades? Yeah. So what continues to motivate you and inspire you? Honestly, meeting the people, meeting the subjects that I have the opportunity to meet, to learn about. And most often it's not the people with fame and fortune, even though that oftentimes impresses people like, oh, you photographed, you know, John Travolta, you photographed the president, you photographed whatever. Um, it's really the, the very real people whose stories, you know, I have the honor to be able to elevate and to put out to a wider audience. This is what drives me. It's just being able to connect with real people who also are going through their own journey in whatever capacity that is. And uh, getting up every day and facing what they have to face, doing their best and doing it with grace. Cheryl Diaz-Meyer, it's been such an honor and pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Megan. Appreciate it. Cheryl Diaz-Meyer is an independent Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. She has covered stories in Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, Europe, and the United States. Her photographs are exhibited worldwide, including at past venues such as the museum's Pulitzer Prize exhibit in Washington, D.C. 
Her work has been published in notable news outlets like The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, and NPR. To view Cheryl's work and to keep up with her future projects or exhibits, visit CherylDiazMeyer.com. We'll also link to her social media accounts on our site, adecibel.com. Thank you for tuning in to this special Encore episode. We hope you enjoyed it. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacey Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L.com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian-American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.